Northern New York Community Podcast, stories from the heart of our community. Hi folks, it's great to have you here for another Northern New York Community Podcast. I'm your host, Max Del Signor. From humble beginnings to helping in the community, longtime North Country resident Mart Linby understands what it means to appreciate what you have. On this podcast, Mart will talk about the adversity he and his family endured on their journey to America. He also takes us into building and sustaining a local business in the North Country, and also gives us a glimpse of how philanthropy has shaped his life. Before we begin, let's take a minute to thank our supporters of the podcast, WPBS and the Northern New York Community Foundation. They are responsible for the creation and production of these great stories from the heart of our community. Head over to WPBSTV.org to see the latest from WPBS and NNYCF.org to learn more about the Community Foundation's recent work. We are grateful for their contributions to our local communities. And now, our conversation with Mart Lindby. Mart, it's great to have you here. Well, thanks for asking me. So let's start at the very beginning. You were born in Sweden, is that correct? Yes. And your family origin is Estonian, is right. that correct? Um, for those that may not know, Estonia is a country that kind of is across from Sweden, across the Baltic Sea, Gulf of Finland. Um, and the country was once part of the Soviet Union. And you grew up in kind of the throes of World War II and, and a lot of traumatic unrest in Europe at that time. Could you just start by sharing some of your early family memories and your family's emigration to Canada? Uh, okay, when the Russians came into Estonia, the second time, September of 1944, uh, my parents caught the last train out of Tallinn. They were going to go to a port to catch a, try and catch a fishing boat to go to Sweden. My mother was three months pregnant with me at the time and uh, the train was supposed to go to Hapsalo, but the conductor stopped in Paliski, a different city, and because he had a ride from there. And so my parents kind of wandered around. Uh, a family took, us, took, my, took them in, gave them a, a place to stay on the floor kind of overnight. And my father said, you know, he, he, he needs to get a boat to Sweden. And he said, well, go down to this bar by the harbor and talk to this guy. And that's what my father did and convinced the guy to let them to go with them and uh, so they got on this fishing boat overloaded with a bunch of people they had everybody had to show, throw their suitcases off because there were too many people on board and a lot of these uh, boats that were escaping with people were getting torpedoed by the Russians and uh, a lot of people didn't make it you know fortunately uh, my parents did and they ended up in a displaced persons camp in Sweden where I was born and uh, my brother was born there we lived in Sweden from well uh, until 1951. I was like six years old. I was born in 45 and uh, we immigrated to Canada then and originally I remember we were on this uh, boat going over to Canada and me and a five-year-old girl we ran away together <laughs> and hid in, a, hid in a closet. We were having having a good time. I remember being on board the, on the ship and, and this toque that I had the wind just blew it away and it was like I remember being, it was really stormy, and everybody was seasick and all this stuff, I and mean, we, we arrived in Halifax, Nova Scotia, and um, they had, I guess, a couple of crates of, of stuff, and they were supposed to go to Windsor, Ontario, but my dad decided to get off in Toronto uh, because there was a, a large Estonian community there, and uh, I remember we ended up in this kind of a rooming house where this one Estonian took people in, and we lived in, the, in one room. The, you know, the four of us, uh, no refrigerator. Uh, you know, I remember mattresses on the floor. You'd put the milk out 
outside on, on, the, on the window ledge to keep it cold. You, it was, anyway, it's, uh, it was interesting. By the time I was 10, we'd lived in probably eight different places. And uh, then 1955, four years later, my parents bought a house. I mean, we didn't have much to put in there, <laughs> but uh, it was amazing. And, and uh, my mother lived in that house for 58 years. She's going to be 94 this year, but she's in a nursing home now. But uh, it, was, it was amazing. You know, I mean, here were immigrants that arrived with nothing. And four years after arriving, they, they bought a house. It's mind-boggling. And I, mean, I remember everybody else got allowances and stuff. But no, no way. You know, Christmas was you got a new pair of socks or a new underwear or something. <laughs> there wasn't toys or anything like that. And uh, I, I remember like, as, a, as a 10-year-old, where we moved into the house, going around the construction sites and collecting uh, soda bottles and you know, getting the, the deposits because there was no allowance, there was nothing like that. So I mean, I've been working since I was 10. And uh, you know, at 12, I, was, uh, I remember shoveling people's uh, sidewalks and, and, and driveways for a nickel or 10 cents. You know? And uh, by the time I was 12, I had a job delivering uh, for a drugstore at 25 cents an hour. It was awesome. <laughs> was that work ethic just what you saw, the sacrifice your parents had made? Yeah. I mean, it's like, I think today, the work ethic doesn't seem to be the same anymore. It's like, um, I think unless you have lived through hardship, you don't really appreciate what you have. Like, my kids are totally spoiled. Uh, well, not totally. I try to teach them the work ethic. But, you know, one's a, my older daughter is a lawyer. Uh, my younger daughter just got her, is getting her master's from NYU. Uh, she's a registered nurse uh, and, uh, you know, they're both, I've tried to teach them to work ethic and I think it's worked. I would say. Two, two great career paths for them. Yeah. Tell me a little bit about the Estonian community in Toronto and how that contributed to your, your childhood. Well, Toronto uh, had the second largest Estonian population outside of Estonia. There was like 20 or 25,000 Estonians in Toronto at the time that we arrived. Um, so there was a strong Estonian community. I, I joined, I went to Estonian school. I joined Estonian Boy Scouts. I went to Estonian camp. I sang with the Estonian choir. You know, we didn't segregate ourselves from the rest of the community. I mean, we assimilated. Now you got, you know, people that don't assimilate. Uh, a lot of uh, Muslims, Hispanics, they got their own communities. They don't learn the language. We assimilated. We learned the language. We, we still maintained our culture a little bit. What were some of the, you know, important tenets of the Estonian culture that may differ from some other cultures across the world? I don't think there's anything much different. It's just, you know, you have uh, the language. Uh, Estonians were basically pagans originally, um, although we're Lutheran. We're just people. We're part of the, of the homogenous mix that is humanity. And that's such a diverse city. Toronto. It is. Well, now it's interesting. I was just up there last week. Toronto is now 60% not not in white. It's amazing. Back when I lived there, it was practically all white. Canada has, has become a country that accepts all people from all over. And uh, I mean, there, you've got huge communities of Sri Lankans, uh, Indians, Jamaicans. Uh, not all of it good, <laughs> but uh, it's interesting. Like my brother and mother still live in Toronto, and uh, near where my brother lives, uh, if you go to the local mall, whites are a minority. Well, I want to touch on your studies at the University of Toronto too. So, you enrolled at high school or moved into high school at the age of 12, right. and then advanced to university at 17. So, pretty young age. Right. Could you share a little bit about just the the student dynamics at Toronto and? You know, were there any disadvantages at being younger uh, well, than enrolling at university? Well, obviously, I mean, if 
by the time I'm in grade 13, then the ninth grade girls were the right age to date. I mean, I didn't date. Because, you know, it was like, I was just this little twerp. But, uh, and in university, it was interesting. Um, I mean, I was 17, looked like 14, and yet we'd go into bars and the drinking age was 21. I remember you know, we'd drink these 10 cent drafts and I remember getting sick as a dog just because I was, I was with my buddies, right? And they said, oh, come on, Marty, we're gonna have a few beers. And I think, well, I don't really drink. <laughs> I hadn't drunk. And uh, university was an interesting experience. I mean, um, I found out that, you know what? They don't care if you go to a class or not. So I started out in uh, en engineering physics or engineering science, which was all the bright guys went there apparently. And I, I discovered pretty early on that, you know what? I'm not the smartest guy in the room anymore. <laughs> These guys are all just as smart. And uh, I also found out that you don't have to go to class. And I, um, I learned how to play bridge. And I uh, spent all my time playing bridge rather than going to class. And I, at Christmas of the, my first year, <clears throat> I was called in and they advised me to drop out of school. That uh, I had had a bursary, which is like a scholarship type thing, uh, to pay for my first year education. Um, and of course, that was toast. Anyway, they advised me to drop out, but I was playing basketball for the engineering team. And our coaches uh, were both industrial engineers, or students. They were uh, in third year, I think, at that time or something. And they suggested I switch over to industrial engineering. And so I did, my first year, uh, after the first semester. And somehow I managed to get through and uh, somehow I managed to graduate in four years instead of uh, losing a year or whatever. So, so finding that first job, you, you get the degree, your, your focus is in engineering. What were the next steps upon graduation from university? So I went to work for Nortel as a systems analyst. Uh, basically uh, designed a, an inventory control system. A couple of different projects that I worked on. One inventory control system, another one was um, capital expenditures. Um, tracking system and you know it's basically just writing computer programs but back then everything was on punch cards and computer time was limited so you'd have to wait uh, for them to put your bass of punch cards in to run your program so after nine months I was so bored of sitting around waiting that I, I quit and I uh, well, I had joined an investment club there at the company, and my boss said, and it was like $10 a month you put in, my boss says, hey, if you're really interested in investing, you should buy some Velcro stock, whatever you can, you know? So I had like about $1,000 saved up. I mean, back then, my salary was like $6,000 a year, and so I had about $1,000 saved up, and I bought three shares of Velcro at $333 a share, and then Velcro split. 10 for one, went up to $75 a share. So now my $1,000 was like $3,000, which is like half a year's salary back then. So anyway, I quit my job and I, I bummed around for a year and a half. I traveled, um, they had Expo 67 in Montreal, big celebration. I had a cousin that was in, at MIT in Boston. I went to visit him, visit him. We went down to uh, Fort Lauderdale for Easter break, down where the, uh, was it the Elbow Room? Uh, Los Olos uh, Boulevard and, and US-1 right on the beach and you know, it was riots going on and, and stuff and the National Guard came out. It was just, <laughs> it was... Interesting time. Interesting time. <laughs> yeah, and then we went to, uh, to the Bahamas, rode around on scooters and stuff and uh, 
Then I went over to Europe. I was supposed to meet somebody in London. They never showed up. And I hitchhiked from uh, London down to Germany. I went through Brussels and France. And uh, I had a friend that was stationed in a US, he was at uh, Green Beret in, in Germany. And I went to visit him and uh, I ended up staying at German, uh, that army base for six months. Wow. <laughs> Well, that's crazy. I bought a motorcycle, rode around the Alps, and uh, skied all day, partied all night. So what did you learn about yourself during that course of time? What, what does an experience like that teach you? Well, I don't know. Um, I think, I think it, it gave me a broader sense of trust yourself. Be free. You know, uh, Enjoy every day and, and work hard. Play hard. Work hard. I mean, it's all part of the same thing. And, and you know, I came back uh, after, after bumming around, and, and uh, I ran into this guy who up where this Estonian camp was. I was up there just visiting. We were playing uh, volleyball out there and I was walking down the road and this guy pulls up and says, you're Mark Limby, aren't you? I said, yeah, you're not working right now. You're an industrial engineer, right? Yeah, yeah. I, I had been confirmed with his daughter. We were in the same confirmation class at church. So anyway, I went over to his cottage. There was a bunch of Estonians that had cottages around this Estonian camp that I went to from the time I was six till I was 16. Every summer, my parents would ship us off there, right? <laughs> well, it gave them a break, you know? Yeah. And, and uh, you know, so you, you, learned, uh, you learned how to fight, you learned how to have a good time, you learned how to be bullied, how to accept it, you learned uh, all kinds of stuff. Life is uh, a challenge. Well, was it at this camp, too, that uh, your point before about being identified as an engineer, industrial engineer, was that the, you know, the introduction to finding this business and pursuing well, that a little bit? Well, yeah, what happened? So I go over to this guy's cottage, and I see all these tents everywhere. And I think, oh, well, he's, he's got a bunch of uh, people staying over here camping out, right? Well, it turns out he was, they were doing pictures for his catalog, that he owned a tent-making company. And he said, well, can you just come down and spend a couple of days walking through my business and see what you think, you know, from your industrial engineering background. I mean, we, you know, we do like time and motion study and, and workflow planning and, and, you know, equipment arranging and all that kind of stuff, some of the stuff that I learned in school. So I, I spent a couple of days wandering through here. Well, what would happen if, you know, we did this? You know, why is he doing that? You know, what happens if you just move this over here and do this? And so he offered me a job as his engineer, as his plant engineer. And I mean, I didn't know anything about sewing or uh, making tents or anything. It was, to me, it was just trying to use common sense, I thought. It was just looking at things from a different perspective. You know, because they've been doing things the same way for, you know, and I, I'm just asking stupid questions. And I thought, well, this is not rocket science. <laughs> so anyway, he offered me a job, and that was like, I mean, I graduated in 1966, and 1967 is when I started bumming around. 1968 is when I started working for him, and, uh, well, he was planning on expanding to the United States, and uh, they were already doing some exporting out of Toronto, and they were going to build a facility in, in Buffalo, and there was some construction strike going on. So they, they started looking around the other end of the lake, and in Clayton, there was what used to be a, a sewing operation that they made bathing suits and t-shirts and stuff. So there was an empty building there, and so with the JCIDA, they decided they'd move down there to, to start an operation down there. So I was sent down there to set up the American operation. So yeah, I started out with an empty building and I had to buy equipment, I had to find people, I had to find locate suppliers. And so, you know, I'm working 80 hours a week, but I'm loving it. 
because uh, I was single, uh, and it was just, you know, it was a challenge. What were your first impressions of Clayton, New York at that time? I loved it. I mean, you know, right on the river. I mean, right away I, I got a boat and, you know, after work I'd go fishing. It was, uh, you know, a little 18-foot inboard outboard thing and, uh, uh, you know, rented a place there. Anyway, I, the, the year that I moved down there is when I met my wife in Toronto, Estonian. We had 1972, there was a big um, Estonian festival. So people from all over the world coming up to Toronto for this Estonian festival. And she was from Australia. Uh, and her cousin was my dentist's wife. So anyway, I got introduced to her through my dentist. So she's a lawyer and she had just, um, she had a law degree from Adelaide University had a master's from McGill University. She had already studied in Canada, and she was going to be teaching at Osgoode Law School in Toronto. So while I was in Clayton, she was in Toronto, we kind of had this expensive phone call stuff, <laughs> and then you know, I would drive back and forth and stuff. And, uh, and anyway, she taught for a year at, at uh, Osgoode Law School in Toronto, and then she got a job at University of British Columbia teaching there. And well, that long-distance relationship was a little bit trickier. I mean, we'd, I'd drive to Toronto, she'd fly in, or I'd drive to Toronto and fly to UBC. And it's just, you know, a long-distance uh, thing. And then, so 1974, we decided, well, you know what? This is crazy, we might as well get married, right? And uh, so we got married in the uh, Japanese, the Toby Gardens in British Columbia on April the 10th. The cherry blossoms were all out and everything. And we had a couple of, uh, witnesses and the two of us and then I drove back to I went back to Watertown and she went back to work and uh, once she finished her work then we had a honeymoon well we actually we had a three-day honeymoon uh, to Harrison Hot Springs and then she went back to work and then later on I flew to Australia when she had gone back there and then she moved moved to the States with me uh, anyway, it's, uh, I've had a very interesting life <laughs> Well, and to be able to, you and, and my be able to connect here and make the North Country your home, what, what were those conversations like? Was it just, you know, trying to build the business? Would you be willing to come here and practice law? What was that conversation? Well, what happened was, yeah, so I, she moved down here, and then she, she went to uh, Syracuse University. And, and in order to tra practice law down here, she would have had to t do some courses. I said, well, I might as well just get another law degree. So she went to Syracuse University and got another degree, did the bar exams and whatever, and uh, went to work for the Wilmot firm, uh, Wilmot Scanlon, whatever it was, back in, well, it would have been 75, 70, something like that. And of course, once, once she uh, finished, uh, we lived in Clayton for a bit. Well, we moved to Watertown in 1976. Because rather than her having to commute for her job, I started to commute from Watertown to Clayton. and. Uh, so we moved to Watertown in 1976, and um, my interest in investing was still involved. I mean, uh, I started an account first, I think, with what, Shushan Robloads, something like that. I don't know. So I can't remember the name of it. But um, anyway, I started investing there, and a few years later, I met Rat Foster, who was, uh, it was a Foster and Adams, then it became Tucker Anthony, uh, and then became RBC. And uh, Rhett was the one that got me involved with the, what was back then the Watertown Foundation in uh, 1986. 
because I had a couple of, I guess, good investments work out. And I've always been frugal, always lived below my means. Uh, you know, I didn't care about fancy cars or stuff like that. It's just from my childhood, you know, not having stuff. You know, you learn to be frugal. I mean, some people call me cheap. I'll say I'm frugal. <laughs> Well, and, and does part of that too, Mark, come from the success of Ridgeline Industries, the business here, as it began to evolve and change over time? Um, some of the products that the business produced right. changed, you know, well, contracts actually, changed. Well, we started Could, could you out talk making, about that too? We started out making camping tents. You know, this was 1972. And we had a pretty good business with um, J.C. Penney Company. And 1974, the parent company in Canada had some financial difficulties. They had, anyway, they went bankrupt. And basically, so the American operation, which, which was I was running, was one of the assets. And so people that came in and looked at us, you know, and, and they say, hey, well, if we buy this, you know, we'll give you 25% of, of the business. And I realized all of a sudden, you know what, I'm worth more than just a bit of a salary. You know, I was making like $10,000 a year. I mean, back in 1972, that was, you know, a, lot, a fair amount of money. But uh, all of a sudden, I realized, you know, that I have some value here. And uh, so what happened was the, the two partners that owned the company in Canada, they owned the building that they were in separately, and they used that to buy back the American operation. Not 10 cents on a dollar, dollar on the dollar. And so they bought it back, and, and I realized, well, you know, I apparently have some value here. So I said, well, who's going to run it for you? I said, if you want me to run it, I want a third. You know, we'll be three-way partners. And they said, yep, okay. So, I mean, for a minimal Im investment, I got, ended up with a third of the company. And then two years later, uh, one of the partners gets uh, a fire cancer, goes through him in three months, dies, and now, you know, his share is tied up in the business. So the other partner then decides, okay, we'll try and sell the company. And so he, he wanted, I don't know, three-quarters of a million dollars or something for it. I said, I'm cool with that. I'll walk away with a quarter of a million or whatever. But anyway, it was way overpriced. I mean, it wasn't worth that. And so he was trying to sell it for like a year and a half. And then my accountant says, well, why don't you buy it? I said, I don't have any money. He says, well, what you could do is, you know, you can take over the debts, the, the mortgage on the building, the, the loans for the, uh, for the equipment, and you can have them take back uh, like a... a a seller's note where you pay them off over five years and then you can borrow money from the bank. You know, it's because you've got this contract with J.C. Penney, you know, showing that you're, you know, you've got some work that's going to provide some income. So in 1977, I bought the business. And uh, unfortunately, in 1982, uh, the United States dropped import tariffs on imported tents. So all of a sudden, tents were coming in from overseas at 20 or 25% less than what I could buy my materials for, let alone make them. So uh, here I am, I'm five years into owning a company and all of a sudden I'm, I'm facing major bankruptcy. Is that the, the camping tent business is gone? I mean, unless you're a specialty manufacturer like uh, Eureka, you know, in Binghamton, right? That it, so how do you survive? How do I survive? Well, one of the people that I met early on was down in Kentucky, uh, a competitor. And we were at a trade show in New York, and we had our booths next to each other. This is 1972. We both started our business at the same time. And so we became like friendly competitors. I mean, we'd have material issues, like we imported flooring material from Japan. Uh, it was, you know, polyethylene bin rolls of, of stuff. 
And uh, so he, he, he was in a jam one time, he needed flooring material, and I had excess, so I lent him some materials. And one time I ran out of zipper chain from my tents, and he lent me some zipper chain. And then at one time, you know, I had delivery issues where I couldn't manufacture fast enough to meet the d demand. He had excess capacity, so he built some tents for me. Another time, he had, I had excess capacity, so I built some tents for him. And so we were like friendly competitors. But with the demise of the camping industry, industry he, he got involved with making tents for the military. So um, in 19, that'll be 1984, 85, we got involved with this um, temper tent program, this tent expandable modular personnel for the Army. And so he needed somebody to make the inner tent, the, the liner. These tents were going these big frames. They're like 20 by 32 feet long, and there's an inner tent, which is a liner, and then there's a frame, and there's an outer tent. So this was early on in the program, and he, he had this small contract to build some prototypes and stuff, and he needed somebody to make the, the liner. So I said, yeah, I'll make the liners for you. So that's how I got into uh, military contracting. And the temper tent program expanded uh, significantly. And in 1986, uh, there was a big contract out there. And so we were going to work together, me and him and, and a, a third company who made the frames. He was going to make the outer tents. I was going to make the liners. And so we put a bid in on this huge contract, uh, $20 million contract. So we all kind of he was going to be the lead guy. He said, well, why don't we all put bids in, in individually as well? So there was uh, nine companies that bid on this contract, and the company that won it was a company called Anchor Industries out of Chicago, but they didn't want to take the whole contract. They, wanted, they said, well, $20 million is too big. Well, we can take 10. So the other 10 was, what they did was they put names in a hat of the other eight bidders, and they drew out Ridgeline's name, my name, our company's name. <laughs> So the thing is, we have to meet their price, right? So here, I'm going to be the tail wagging the dog out of this $10 million contract. You know, $6.5 million is, is the outer thing, $2.5 million is uh, the frames, and the liner part is $1.5 million. But I'm responsible now for a whole $10 million contract, because I'm now going to be the prime contractor. Anyway. <laughs> Did that make you anxious? Did, but uh, you felt bit. the company could do it? A little bit. <laughs> but... You know, it's, it's crazy. So I wrote up like this little three three page agreement, saying, you know, if whoever is responsible for any delays or whatever, even though I'm responsible, that they're going to have to make it up, and everybody sign it, and, and it worked out. We we got the contract done. It ran for like two years, and uh, and then so I kind of found my little niche in in making these liners, and then I got involved with other projects, uh, working with uh, Natick Research and Development uh, Labs, where they do different things where we designing boot walls and then we did the solar shades and we I worked on a solar shade project for uh, a number of years which you know solar shades became a big thing for Afghanistan and, and for Iraq is that we got the, the huge temperatures so we got so we built these uh, 50 by 50 shades that you could hook together and cover materials and, and everything and we cut the ambient temperature by 20 degrees or something Anyway, that was that was kind of my swan song. <laughs> well, when I ended up with some health issues in 2002, I, uh, and uh, I got kind of burned out, and uh, I had had these you know companies they send you say, well, you know, we want to buy your company or, or your whatever. So I think you know what, maybe it's time for me to retire. Maybe it's time for me to kind of get out. And uh, so this guy came along and bought my business and. Uh, um, he made out like a bandit, 
on those solar shades for a couple of years. As I, I always price my product from the bottom up, you know, uh, materials, labor, overheads, and then you, you put a slice for profit on the top. And he went out and said, look at what the market would bear. And so he priced it totally differently. He made a ton of money for two years. But then my buddy down in Kentucky, he heard about this program and he big contract comes out and he underbid him. So he lost that business. And, and it turns out that that solar shade program saved my buddy's business in Kentucky. And it's uh, it kind of crazy. As you reflect, what were, and from an engineer's and analyst perspective, what do you feel were the most important keys to having a successful North Country business, even though you served, you, know, you had nationwide and global presence? I think um, staying close to your people. You know, every morning I would walk around and talk to every individual that, that worked for me and say, how are things going? You know, uh, what's happening? How's your kid? I heard your husband had a little thing or whatever, you know, and just to be a, a listener, to offer support, even though you can't solve their problems just to be um, empathetic, you know, to, to let them know you, that you cared about what's going on in their life. It's not just about work. Because I know that, you know, if you bring your problems to work and uh, it can affect how you work, you know, but if you think that, that you feel that, you know, that uh, the people you work for support you and care. I mean, I started a, a pension plan for uh, the people that worked for me back in 1979. You know, okay, maybe I didn't pay the most, but these people, they, they weren't savers. So I started a pension plan and they said, you know, that I would put 10% of whatever they earn, I would put 10% into the pension plan. Of course, it wouldn't vest until you've been with me five years. So at first year, if you've been with me a year, you're 20% vested. Second year, you're 40% invested. So we encourage people to stay, you know, and, uh, I mean, I got, I got people that got six-figure uh, retirements. You know, by the time uh, I had to close uh, the fund out in 2004 when I sold the business because I, had all, I was still administering the um, pension fund and the new guy, he didn't want to take responsibility for people that weren't even working there anymore. And uh, so we ended up cashing it out, sending everybody checks and uh, you know, told them to roll them over into IRAs. Some people did. Some people went out and bought houses and cars and paid the penalties, but, uh, you know, that's their choice. Uh, and people are too, um, I think, material oriented, you know, where you want instant gratification. You want to go out and buy that new car. You want to go out and buy that new TV. You don't, you don't worry about the fact that you're paying a ridiculous interest on, on this stuff, you know, and back then, you know, it was, uh, interest rates were a lot higher. I remember uh, when I had an 11 and percent mortgage and uh, the quickest I could pay that off, <laughs> I did. The better off you'd be, right? Yeah. It's like another thing, you learn the power of compounding, you know, saving is, I think, that's how assets grow. You know, you save and you invest, you know, rather than spend and borrow. It's, it's one thing I try to teach my kids. It's one thing I try to teach the people that work with me. And, uh, well, and, and, and being a good saver and, and interest in investing certainly transitions, I think, pretty well to your interest in philanthropy and giving back to some of the organizations you care about here. Right, well that's, that's what, uh, you know, 1986, you know, back when the Watertown Foundation had assets of what, 1.8 million or something, is when I made my, you know, Rhett Foster says, you know, hey, you made some money in the stock market, you know, rather than writing out you know, checks every year to all these different things, why don't you set up an advised fund, donate stocks that have appreciated and have the community foundation send out checks to United Way and hospice and 
uh, Urban Mission and all these local charities rather than it's a win-win. Yeah. Right. I don't pay tax on the gains and it helps. So that's how I first got involved in 1986. So I've been involved with the foundation since 1986. And, uh, you know, I, I believe in, in the work that they do. And, and when Randy talked to me about the new facility of, of taking over the Black River Valley Club and expanding and stuff, I just uh, jumped on it. I said, hey, this is awesome. I was first one to jump on the bandwagon and say, yeah, I'll help this thing. So what, what enticed you or what got you excited about the Northern New York Philanthropy Center concept? Well, I think just to make it more visible, you know? Uh, I mean, being on the fourth floor of the Marine Midland building, I mean, it's, uh, I don't know, saving a historic building and also being right out there could do nothing but help uh, the visibility of the Northern New York Community Foundation. And, uh, uh, and I think it has, you know, in the couple of years that you guys have been there. And I'm, I'm just thrilled to be, uh, feel like I'm a part of it, you know. When they say it's, it's better to give than receive, it totally is. I mean, it's like I could, I could probably, my heart goes out to all the people that get involved. Not necessarily monetarily, but the ones that are volunteers that do everything. You know, I, I should probably do more hands-on volunteering rather than monetary type stuff. But um, it's, um, I'm doing what I can in, in my way. And, um, so what inspires you to give? When you think about the organizations that you generously give a gift to, um, if it's the community foundation or another agency, what really compels you to make a gift to support an organization? I believe in the work that they do. You know, the, how, you know, so many different organizations that help in their own way and they, you know, they, they do things differently, whether it's uh, CASA or the volunteer transportation, you know, I mean, all these are worthwhile projects. And it's, um, I've lived here in Watertown now more than half my life, you know, in spite of, you know, the fact that, uh, you know, I got, I'm an Estonian, Swedish, Canadian, American. I mean, I'm Estonian. I was born in Sweden. I got Canadian citizenship. I grew up there, went to school there. But I'm an American citizen. I'm an American. I've been an American now for over half my life. And I feel like I belong here, and it's a great country, and I want to do my part to give back to the community. You know, where I've had the opportunity to run a business and, you know, meet a lot of great people, I'm blessed. How important, Mart, is it is philanthropy, really, to the future of the North Country? I think it's huge. I mean, right now, you know, we're working on a project with the Y to try and create this new center, to, to new aquatic center and, and other sports center to bring people back to the downtown. I mean, Watertown, the downtown has been hurting for a long time. I mean, everything that's going on right now with this downtown revitalization initiative is, is fantastic. You know, and the fact that we're trying to save some of these historic buildings like the Masonic Temple, you know, it's a shame that some of the old buildings were torn down. When I see some of the pictures from, uh, you know, that, that uh, well, PBS did this fantastic thing on Watertown. I've got the CD and I've gone through it and looked at it. And, Man, this is this is an amazing city. I'm thrilled to be part of it. You mentioned the Watertown Family YMCA project as something that's coming up and is inspiring to you or is going to compel you to, to support it in some fashion. Are there other projects or efforts that are going on in the community that inspire you or compel you to continue to give to? Or do you see some things coming up that you feel are going to be really important to this community's future? I can't say specifically. I mean, so I, I'm, I'm planning to do it through the Northern New York Community Foundation. It's uh, my IRA 
and my brokerage account are going to go to the community foundation, at least at this point. And, and is that part of, part of your legacy too, and, and family legacy, to be able to kind of perpetuate the giving that you have you know, supported this community for so long? Yeah, well, that's the plan. <laughs> How important is, is it to, to have that established, though, so that your, your giving can be enduring? I don't know that, you know, it's, uh, it's not about me. I mean, it's, it's about the community. I mean, I mean, every day you pick up the paper and you go to the obituary page, and my name's not on there, I'm okay. <laughs> 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 but you know what? So you see, maybe there's a nice obituary column, but then what happens? I mean, you know, it's, it's another soul passed on. I don't really worry about whether anybody remembers me or not. I'll be fine with the fact that I've left some kind of legacy behind that's going to continue to do stuff for the community. How important has it been to involve your children in this process too? Well, I'm trying to get them involved. So uh, part, of, part of it is they're going to be involved with some of the decisions on how some of the income is distributed. I want to get them involved, you know, even if it's like indirectly, so that they get the sense of, of what it means. I mean, so, so they can pick projects that they want, but you know, within this community mostly. You know, one daughter lives in Virginia, the other one's in, in Manhattan or in uh, New York City, but they still have ties to North Country. My uh, older daughter uh, in Virginia there, I mean, she gets the Watertown Daily Times uh, via, you know, the... Through online? Online, right, online, you know. And, and my younger daughter, she still has friends here, and uh, she comes up and visits, and uh, I want them to retain some ties with the North Country. And why is it important to go back to what you talked about earlier, why is it important to have a strong community foundation to be here to help this community and the North Country into the future? Well, I, I think the impact that the foundation has, you know, as, as it continues to grow, is, is going to be a major factor in, in, this, in the survival of this city. You know, I mean, jobs are hard to come by up here. If it weren't for drum, a lot of businesses would be hurting, and it seems like Young kids, they graduate, they move away. You know, they don't want to stay necessarily. And it, this is a great, great area to raise a family, a great area recreationally. You know, we got the river, and it's a, uh, I think it's a, the pluses for growing up here are great. I mean, I don't know how to put it any other way. I mean, and I'm glad that the foundation is a big part of what makes this area stay healthy. The last question I'll ask it, you kind of, you kind of mentioned it here in, your le in this past comment, but as kind of a softer question to wrap up, share just what you appreciate the most about Northern New York, given that you've lived here now more than half your life. That's easy. It's so simple. <clears throat> traffic. <laughs> it's not like Toronto traffic, man, I tell you. Well, the winters kind of suck, especially this winter. But, you know, it's, um, I think it's, you know, it's people. You, you make relationships and it's friendships you form that uh, it's, I think in everybody's life, it's all about relationships. Uh, you make some strong ones after, after you've been living in a place for a while, you know, and it's, it's a people as much as the place. Well, we're certainly fortunate that you decided to, you and I together, you know, raise your kids here, contribute to the North Country the way you have, and very grateful for the generosity that you've shown to this area for, for many decades now, and thanks so much for taking the time to share your story with us. Thanks for having me. That concludes another edition of the Northern New York Community Podcast. It is easy to find and listen to all these episodes of the podcast. Just search for us on Apple iTunes, Spotify, Google Play, Stitcher, or other podcast platforms. You can also listen to interviews, see other content such as interview transcripts and photo galleries on the podcast website. 
Just go to nnycpodcast.com to see more. Our sincere thanks to Mart Lindby for joining us, and thanks to all of you for tuning in to the Northern New York Community Podcast. Northern New York Community Podcast, stories from the heart of our community.